This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We blew through a lot of material on last week's program, but had such a huge backlog that we're proud to report that we've been able to just put together another show in no time flat. As you no doubt have noted, dear listener, we are sometimes all over the map on the topics that we uh, choose to discuss, and today is certainly going to be no exception to that. Let us just jump right in then and talk about the fact that the 2020 census is going to change the representation in Congress of the various states, and there's going to be a trend toward the red states. As reported on this program and elsewhere, there was a lot of chicanery involved in um, the census enumeration. Every effort was made to exclude people who would otherwise be counted, but uh, in this case were written off as being illegals. We don't know how big a role that played in the um, the reapportionment that's going to take place in Congress, but I'm pretty sure that it did to a degree. But if you're keeping score after House seats are reapportioned based on population, we're going to see um, a, a few a few blue states will gain. Oregon, Colorado will pick up a seat. This will be balanced off by the red states of Montana, North Carolina, and Florida gaining a seat. Texas is going to pick up two seats. California for the first time, is going to lose a seat, as will New York, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, all blue states, also Ohio and West Virginia, which of late have been red. Of course, uh, the overall population of the United States in the South and West has continued to boom. In 1970, the two regions accounted for less than half of the nation's population, but today that's risen to 62%. The nation notched a total population of 331 million, 7.4% higher than 2010, considered the second lowest rate of growth in American history above only the 1930s. Of course, again, we're not sure how many people got excluded from this census due to politics. One thing does seem certain that um, the bulk of America's population growth appears to be coming from People immigrating, not from people having babies. The U.S.'s total fertility rate hit a record low of 1.7 births per women in 2019. That's the latest year for which data is available. That year, the number of babies born in the U.S. was 3.7 million, a 35-year low. A dramatic drop in birth mirrors a worldwide trend. Britain, Canada, France, and Australia all had fertility rates below 1.9 which is below the replacement rate of 2.1 needed to sustain a population. Now, economists get very upset about this sort of thing because economists have never been able to figure out how to resolve very basic problems. And a very basic problem facing the human race is the fact that we have too damn many people on the planet, and all of those people want to, they would like to live well, let's face it. You know, we all want to do the best we can in life, And these days, given the possibility of a very high standard of living, it translates into a very high impact on the ecosystem and lots and lots of energy generation, which is producing lots of CO2, etc., etc., etc. The solution to all of this is fewer people. 
Although it's been my observation that nobody, almost nobody out there seems to want to address that. It's also noted by those who pay attention to such things that there's going to be a baby bust due to the pandemic, which is expected to result in 300,000 to 500,000 fewer babies born in the U.S. It is noted that housing costs play a role in, um, in, in the falling of the fertility rate. The National Bureau of Economic Research says that the largest component of child rearing costs is, in fact, housing, and the cost of housing in America has skyrocketed. The median U.S. home in 1953 cost $18,000, which is about $177,000 in inflation-adjusted dollars. But today, the median home price in America is over $300,000. That's in America, where housing is cheap in some places. Here in the Bay Area, the East Bay, I recently saw a newsletter from a realtor noting that in the Tri-City area of Fremont, Newark, and Union City, the average home price was, I believe, over $1.4 million. We'll have a lot more to say about that shortly. Now, last November, New Scientist magazine had an issue on the population question, which pointed out that those who advocate limiting population must be clear about how they intend to do it. Yeah, because, well, let's face it, unleashing a pandemic is probably not a good way. But the coronavirus pandemic did get people thinking about, you know, population growth and what this all means for our future. The magazine did note that humans are, without a doubt, overexploiting the world's resources. I'm horrified to note that, you know, I wasn't born that long ago. I'll admit it, it was a while back. But uh, I do note that when I was born, the world population is now one-third of what it is today. I would note that the population when I was born was just one-third of the world's population today. And currently, more than twice as many people will be born as will die in a year. They noted that pandemic or no pandemic, humanity's numbers would swell by something like 80 million in 2020, which I'm sure it did. The United Nations Population Division's most favored median projection estimates that 9.7 billion people will be on the planet in 2050 and 10.9 billion by 2100. Those figures are based on the average global fertility rate, and it's pretty clear there's not a lot of difference in population projections over the next 34 years depending upon who you ask. And and let's face it, planet Earth is not going to survive that many people. Now, Thomas Malthus famously wrote back in the 1700s about the ability of the planet to sustain so many people. The increase in production over the last couple centuries proved Malthus wrong in the short run. In the 1960s, the first wave of the environmental movement brought soul-searching about global population numbers that were, at that time, barely half what they are today. In 1972, the Club of Rome, a grouping of prominent politicians, economists, scientists, and diplomats, published The Limits to Growth, a report that used computer modeling to predict the collapse of global systems in the mid to late 20th century if then-current trends of population growth and resource consumption were continue. They did continue, and civilization hasn't collapsed so far. The Green Revolution in agriculture began to kick in from the late 1960s, allowing more people to be fed more securely. I, I, 
which I would add again in the short run. Of course, a lot of people like to argue that, you know, it's not just the sheer numbers of people that are on the planet that's causing so much trouble. It's our per capita consumption, which produces CO2. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, it's not really very accurate to compare the low levels produced by Nigerians to that of those in the U.S. and China. And China is headed up, up, up. And in the interconnected world in which we live, people are able to see how the better half lives in other countries, and they want to live like that too. It's hard to blame them. The Japanese, by the way, have at least found a partial solution to their flat population growth by using robots more and more. So perhaps that will have a positive role to play in the future. I think in America, robots are basically a way of, you know, firing workers so you don't have to pay um, retirements. But uh, the fact of the matter is we're not going to delve into this topic at at any great length today. Except, I think, to focus on uh, the issue of California and California's population growth. And in particular, the fact that you keep hearing in the press about our housing crisis. And the fact of the matter is we do have a housing crisis. When, when houses in the Tri-City area of the East Bay cost $1.4 million, something is out of whack. And as an aside, we've taken a very cynical view here of um, efforts in California to recall Gavin Newsom, which to us is, seems just absolutely bizarre. Or maybe I should say seemed absolutely bizarre. Clearly, we have a lot of Republicans and uh, people in Silicon Valley. I understand some venture capitalists are lavishly funding the effort to get rid of uh, Newsom. A a lot of bad could come of uh, having a recall effort. Recall what happened when California replaced Gray Davis with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, nothing disastrous took place, but nothing very good did either. Now, Dan Bacher, who we need to get back on this program, who is... an environmental activist has pointed out that uh, Newsom has been supporting the idea of shipping more of Northern California's water south to Southern California because, well, that's going to make a lot of money for a lot of people that are going to support Gavin Newsom. We find that all pretty despicable, but uh, that's something else to complain about at the moment. Article from the East Bay Times about goings-on in Sacramento notes that Quote, offering a boost to large residential developments in the midst of a deepening housing crisis, Governor Gavin Newsom on Thursday signed into law a measure streamlining environmental reviews for large projects. Newsom joined state and local leaders and housing and labor advocates at the site of Google's Downtown West Development, a massive project bringing together home and office space on a scale that will reshape downtown San Jose. Newsom touted legislation as a way to give developers, such as Google, yeah, Google as a real estate developer, more financial and regulatory certainty on major projects. You know, I just I think it's really important that a struggling company like Google, you know, can, can, can have more financial security on a project like this. It was noted that the new law also expands the existing streamlined review process to more and smaller developments. Now, A major reason this correspondent no longer lives in Sacramento, California, a town I I like very much, is some real estate chicanery that took place. I watched how Angelo Sakopoulos, one of the state's biggest Democratic Party donors and wealthiest individuals, got what he wanted from local 
restrictions on development. He too was able to, quote, streamline the review process to the developments he wanted to see pursued. And let's face it, when they talk about streamlining the process, they should substitute the word bypassing the process. Anyway, back to the article. Newsom said the bill is about our comeback. The measure, SB7, was authored by Senate President Pro Temp Tony Atkins, Democrat San Diego, and extends and expands the state's fast-track environmental scrutiny <laughs> for residential infill developments. I'm sorry, I just have to laugh. Expands the state's fast-track scrutiny. Ex- you're expanding the scrutiny? You, what, you're bypassing the scrutiny. The projects must have an investment of $15 million to $100 million. At least 15% of the housing must be affordable. That's a scam we'll talk about momentarily. The new law was supported by housing advocates, Bay Area legislators, statewide labor and developers to make it easier to complete the environmental assessment process. They note that projects can, however, still be challenged over their potential disruption of their communities. Well, that's good. You can still challenge them if it's going to disrupt your entire community. The new law is one of a handful of housing projects backed by legislative leaders and Newsom this session. You know, maybe he does need to go. More ambitious plans to overhaul local zoning and developmental regulations failed in Sacramento last year and smaller bills stalled over inter-party disputes. At any rate, this Downtown West project, I guess directed by Google, is one prime example of business investments in the state. This is an 80-acre project around the Duradon Station in San Jose. It won unanimous approval from the San Jose Planning Commission last month and is scheduled to be considered by the City Council on Tuesday. Yeah, when I was watching this uh, this development debate take place in East Sacramento, I did attend a planning commission, Sacramento Planning Commission meeting. A patient I had who was a real estate developer himself assured me that the fix was in with the planning commission. All I can say is after watching them in action, I would have to say he may have been onto something in his assessment. Some years ago in this program, we, we did a burlesque referring to a group called Yimby. Yes, in my backyard, we labeled it. The premise was that a public relations firm would hire people to attend city council meetings to, to advocate for, say, you know, a, a, a tire burning plant in the neighborhood, you know, that would be belching black smoke around. They, they thought that would they, would, they would show up and say, no, no, we want this. Well, to our surprise, Yimby is now a real group in the Bay Area. And it appears to be an influential one because there seems to be a triumvirate. I know I don't mean Crassus, Ptolemy, and Julius Caesar. I mean an evil cabal consisting of techno-kings, that is to say the moguls in Silicon Valley, and the California real estate industry, and Wall Street, all of which want to see big bucks being made in real estate. They want to continue the fact that California has been, um, you know, one giant real estate development since dating back to the gold rush. But what really cracks me up is the fact that they've framed this as a way to bring more affordable housing to the Bay Area. Writing about this topic in the Marin Post was Zelda Bronstein in their April 24th, 2021 issue. The article was titled, Facebook's Housing Echo Chamber. Subheadline notes that Zuckerberg money funds news outlets that repeat Zuckerberg's supply-side position on the so-called housing crisis. 
Bronstein notes that in 2019, she reported that the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, CZI, was using mega grants to shape California housing policy and law. CZI gave enterprise community partners $500,000 to draft and then lobby for Assemblymember David Chu's AB 1482, the law that authorized the Metropolitan Transportation Commission to become a one-stop regional planning agency overseeing transportation and housing. You know, this is part of the streamlining process of getting your projects through. But noted Bronstein, I didn't realize the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was also using its largesse to try and shape California housing news. KQED's housing series was funded with Facebook money. 2019, CZI gave KQED $750,000 to help launch what the NPR station called, quote, a dedicated housing news desk to cover the Bay Area's housing and affordability crisis, unquote. Bronstein notes that the CZI-funded housing news desk caught her attention in October 2020 when its Sold Out series turned to zoning with a podcast called Zoning Out and an online print piece headlined The Racist History of Single-Family Home Zoning and credited Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon. Bronstein notes her interest was further piqued by Sold Out's subsequent treatment of zoning all rehashes of the October show through the segment broadcast by NPR's Weekend Edition in March, which which relocated the basic story to Sacramento. Apparently the piece from March 13th of 2021 was titled Facing Housing Crunch, California Cities Rethink Single-Family Neighborhoods. The sold-out piece in October of 2020 had opened its zoning series by indicting zoning for single-family homes as a major source of racial segregation and housing unaffordability. The KQED reporters cited accurately, notes Bronstein, the Berkeley notables who in 1916 invented such zoning, invented such zoning as a way to keep Asians, blacks, and immigrants out of the city's then new high-end neighborhoods, the Claremont, the Uplands, and the Elmwood. Baldessari observed in a March 15th piece that single-family zoning was sort of race-neutral in its language, so it allowed the city to have the effect of racial exclusion without explicitly saying that people of color could not live there, using basically an economic segregation to exclude people of color. Noting that's because single-family homes were just more expensive than multi-family housing. Well, that part is true. And goes on to detail where it is black families were able to purchase homes in the Bay Area. Baldessari and Solomon repeatedly applauded State Senator Tony Atkins' failed 2020 bill, SB 1120, and its identical 2021 bill, SB 9, which, as we just told you, just passed and got signed into law. They said it would allow up to two duplexes on lots where only one home had previously been permitted and thereby eliminate single-family zoning in California. In fact, notes Bronstein, the state had already eliminated single-family home zoning as recent California laws allow the addition of a granny flat, an ADU it's called, plus a junior ADU on a parcel currently zoned for a single-family house, quote, by right, in other words, no public hearing, no sequel review. The catch is that SB9 says if a landowner decides to split a lot zone for single-family housing and build two residential units on each of the two new lots, the city is not required to permit an ADU or a junior ADU. 
Anyway, I don't want to get I don't want to get lost in the weeds in this discussion on the details, but the piece notes that houses are not like widgets. Greater density, aka upzoning, allows more profit to be squeezed out of the same space and thereby inflates the value of land, meaning that in hot markets like the Bay Area, densification makes housing densification makes housing less affordable. An example was cited at uh, Berkeley of a 1310 Haskell Street where a contractor paid $650,000 for a decrepit bungalow, which he wanted to replace with three new housing units. Berkeley at first said yes, then they said no. The developer then got in bed with the San Francisco Bay Area Renters Foundation and sued Berkeley twice and won. He then tore down the old house and built three units in its place, each of which he sold for $1.2 million or $1.3 million. The article goes on to report how people who are advocating for reform in housing and, uh, and in many cases want to retain the charm of the neighborhood they live in, they're all being portrayed as Trump Republicans loving their suburbs and wanting to keep people of color out. I do want to inject my own opinion at this point that, you know, diversity in the populations in which you live is, is a pretty healthy thing. When I grew up in the East Bay, it is undeniable that the region I was in had excluded black people. But pretty much every other group you would possibly imagine lived side by side. And by that I mean poor people lived down the street from more wealthy people. There was no affordability crisis back then. In the wake of what's happened in the Bay Area with the tech boom, it is no longer the case that where I grew up is a diverse area. I was informed by my old high school teacher that in one of the local high schools, not the one I attended, the population was 90% either of Indian or Chinese extraction. Now, back in my day, we had quite a population of Mexican, Mexican-American, Chicano, whatever you want to call them, Filipino, Japanese. We had a smattering of Jewish people. We had quite a few Italians and Portuguese. We had quite a few wasps. We certainly were not 90% Chinese or Indian. So what's going on? Mr. Miller points out that sometime back for one of our shows, we did look up the numbers and concluded they were nowhere near 90%. Nevertheless, to say that there's been a demographic shift in an area like Fremont, I think is something that uh, will be evident to anyone who strolls around and sees who's strolling around with them. Anyway, my punchline to a lot of this is that the idea we're going to make the Bay Area more affordable through a supply-side solution of building more housing everywhere, is delusional. These groups are funding studies determined to prove the opposite, to show that, you know, if we just built more housing, everything would be hunky-dory. But I'm here to tell you, it just isn't so. And the hint that a lot of people who would favor zoning laws that can keep communities dominated by single-family homes or a bunch of racists is demonstrably false. Zelda Bronstein took a look at where the funds for the CZI grants were going and noted that the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative did give $100,000 to California Yimby, gave $300,000 to CalMatters, an advocacy group, and said a new term popped up in my mind, CZI World. Facebook money is funding an echo chamber, the occupants of which, by citing each other's work, expand the audience for and legitimacy of their agenda. And at bottom, that is a political agenda. It's a very long piece, and, I, and I, I'm trying to excerpt it as best I can, but I want to note in the close, 
that in a 2018 book, Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area, UC Berkeley Professor of Geography Emeritus Richard Walker offers a different analysis than what you've been hearing from the so-called housing advocates. Walker attributes the region's soaring land values to the demented demand generated by the tech boom. Writing in Urban Studies in 2019, UCLA professor of urban planning Michael Storper and Andreas Rodriguez-Pose, professor of economic geography at the London School of Economics, challenged the dominant supply-side position head-on. They maintained, quote, the key factor in the housing affordability crisis is not the lack of supply entailed by onerous local regulations, but rather the demand arising from the current geography of employment, wages, and skills, specifically the migration of highly compensated, highly skilled workers into prosperous regions, and in the U.S., the absence of the kind of delicate and complex policy mix required to ameliorate the housing affordability crisis. Storper and Rodriguez-Pose argued that instead of lowering prices, blanket changes in zoning for greater density, i.e. upzoning, would increase gentrification within metropolitan areas and would not appreciably decrease income inequality. Last August, they reiterated that argument in a second urban studies piece. Instead of focusing on property capitalists in 1916 Berkeley, how about spotlighting contemporary elites, starting with the leaders of big tech, whose better compensated employees have bid up the price of Bay Area real estate to astronomical heights. Yet, California Yimby got its start with a $2 million donation from tech executives, not including Zuckerberg. How about following the money trail? Noted Bronstein, if Baldessari and colleagues want to make an even stronger demonstration of autonomy, they could examine Facebook's impact on the city that hosts its headquarters, Menlo Park, whose population is only slightly smaller than the 35,000 employees that the company has said it ultimately intends to accommodate in town. The strongest statement of all, said Bronstein, would be an in-depth look at the Chan Zuckerberg initiative itself. The grants that she had noted in this piece were a tiny fraction of the 91 gifts totaling $77 million that the CZI website lists under, quote, housing, unquote. Where's all that money gone and to what effect? assuming it doesn't follow what Herman and Chomsky called the propaganda model of journalism. That would be brave reporting. Anyway, in the couple of minutes I have left, I'm looking at another piece about, uh, from the East Bay Times about Google's real estate expansion is not slowing. Google itself is becoming a real estate developer. Surprise, surprise. And we should note that California appears to be awash in cash right now thanks to a booming real estate market. And I should note also that California is currently apparently awash in cash thanks to a booming market. Things were looking pretty grim during the uh, COVID epidemic, but Wall Street came to the Golden State's rescue, noted Matt Phillips in a reprint from a New York Times piece. The stock market, after a steep but brief downturn in March of 2020, has soared to new heights, prompting a record number of companies, many of them based in California, to go public. The rising market minted new millionaires and padded the incomes of the state's wealthiest residents, who typically own a lot of stock. For California, that meant a windfall. Its taxes on such stock-based gains are the highest in any state, and its largest revenue source is personal income tax. It might be noted that almost half of the personal income tax revenue that California collects comes from the top 1% of the state's earners. 
since much of that group's income comes from stock holdings and stock-based compensation, their fortunes are tied to the performance of the stock market. It's a triumvirate, folks. The tech giants, the real estate industry, and Wall Street. They want to build more, and they want to build lots more. And they're claiming, at least part of the reason is, they want to have better housing affordability. Well, don't believe it. It is a goal somewhere in the mix, but it's not the main thrust. And I'm just tired talking about it. I need a break, and I'm sure you do too. Let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. we got plenty more in the second half, and we may lighten the load just a little bit. I have often walked on the street before But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before All at once am I several stories high trees in the heart of town can you hear a lot 